Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. And we're back with episode 21 of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I am your co-host, Dr. Sharin Tofai in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Dr. Kevin L. Hayek coming to you from the best season of the year in Cleveland, Ohio. It's early fall. The leaves are starting to change color. Mm. I know that you and I are wrapping up some busy summer travel uh, and we're both looking forward to a few weeks at home. I think you're exaggerating, Kevin. I'm not sure it's the best season, maybe the best like week or two in Cleveland. I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, well, let's just say I'm looking forward to the rest of the year, especially that I'll be home a little bit for the holidays. That would be very, very nice. You travel a lot. You go to, don't you go to uh, Nigeria in November? Actually next week and in November. So I'm going twice oh this God. year. Next wow. week with a group of University of Michigan people. We can talk a little bit about that. So that that group's going next week. We'll talk about that a little bit. Nice segue for you. Fantastic. Well, we snagged our next guest while she's at home in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm sure you're enjoying the fall weather in the Midwest, just like you, Kevin. We're delay- delighted to have Dr. Dana Tellum. She is our guest today on Sage's Stories. She is a tenured professor of surgery and the laser greenfield professor and chief of general surgery at the University of Michigan. She oversees, check us out, seven surgical divisions, 44 surgeons and counting, and over 100 staff. And let me tell you, this division was not like this before she came. It has become so robust because of Dr. Tellum and her visionary leadership. She also serves as the vice chair of quality and safety. Clinically, her practice is focused on advanced laparoscopy, including foregut, hernia, yay, and bariatrics. She is the Principal investigator on R01-funded NIH research that combines implementation science and policy to advance evidence-based practice across multiple hospital collaboratives. We hope to delve into this much more today. Dr. Tellum has authored over 170 peer-reviewed publications. She serves as associate editor for not one, not two, but four specialty journals. She is the vice president of SAGES, was elected the Ameri- to the American Surgical Association in 2022, which for those of you who may not know, is the most elite society we have for surgeons. Ah, that's a mouthful. And I must say that's a lot of accomplishment for this one little petite body of Dr. T- Dana Tellum. So <laughs> welcome to Sage's Stories, Dana. <laughs> oh my God, you're too funny. Thank you so much. I, it's I the love truth. being here. Now, I, I thank you so much for coming. I totally resonated with the fall comment. I think California has definitely its upside, but I can't get rid of the seasons. But if you catch me around February right here, then then it's like at the nadir. So you got to enjoy the good times when you have it. Lots of, lots of roller coasters, but pretty awesome. And I, I think mean, it's I just... more than a couple of weeks. I mean, it's probably, <laughs> you're, you're being a little bit harsh on us there, uh, Sharon. Let me tell you, I just got back from Austin at the American Hernia Society meeting. California weather is really nice. (laughs) Yeah, it is. We'll we'll give you that. Yes. Well, Dana, to start, we always like hearing about the early years of our guests. So where did you grow up and what were some highlights on your journey to becoming a physician? Oh, thanks. Gosh, thinking back that far every single year, it seems harder and harder to think. (laughs) back that far and kind of how to get there. So um, I grew up actually in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I was born in Philadelphia. Uh, My parents had immigrated to this country in the 1970s. My mom is Hungarian. My dad is Israeli. So we had a very, very tight knit family. Um, My biggest joke is that my high school was farther from my house than was my college and then was my medical school. So I was totally going (laughs) in the wrong direction. Closer and closer. 
totally. And I was worried <laughs> that like, if I didn't get myself out of the Philadelphia area, by the time I hit residency, it was just going to be all over. And I was going to be living with my parents for the rest of my life. So took that huge leap and managed to go an hour and a half north to New York City, which which was a big deal. And then, you know, spent the rest of my time sort of on the East Coast and then somehow by happenstance ended up in the Midwest, despite having, I don't think, ever visited Ann Arbor or been in Michigan in my entire life until the day I, I moved in for, wow. <laughs> for my job. So that was a little bit of a leap of faith, but it was a great upbringing. I have a sister and a brother. My brother is a lawyer and he has a partner and they live in New York City, this delightfully grand lifestyle. And um, my sister wow. is uh, in the education kind of biz and she's hanging out in Philadelphia also with my parents. So everybody's still on the East Coast. And how were you inspired to get into medicine? Oh, my mom being the delightful immigrant parents that they were taught me I had two choices in life, doctor and lawyer and pick one. But <laughs> lucky for me, I actually fell in love with medicine in general. And I actually wasn't sure which route I would take. Um, when I was in college, I was actually sounds weird to think about now, but very much in between either getting a PhD in evolutionary biology. I loved fast oh, and slow yeah rates of mutation that was my undergrad uh, degree was evolution um, organismic and wasn't evolution it the yeah best? yeah wasn't it was it a very best? yeah huge misnomer that evolution is slow it's not it's fast yeah. and it's slow and there's so many cool things to to do and then you know, I hemmed and hawed with it a little bit and then decided that a medical degree would give me a little bit more versatility depending on what I ended up wanting to do and then somehow ended up a surgeon, but mm -hmm. that was a different journey. Um, but I just kind of fell in love with discovery and innovation and finding out new things and how do you have impact and help people on the individual level and, you know, and all the kind of levels. And I, I found that to bring great meaning. That's great. And so you, so go, just go through your, so you went high school uh, further and then where did you go under, undergrad? Yeah. Then? And then I went to um, university of Pennsylvania for undergrad and then Jefferson for medical school. Okay, I didn't know you were an evolutionary biology major. I was. You also? Yeah, I, I was. Yeah. I don't know. Were you I, sure? That was my, I was biology. It used to really didn't have um, other options, but if I, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was biology, but my favorite class was evolutionary biology. If they had an option, I would have done that for sure. What are the odds of that? Like this is right. yeah, me, this is true. crazy. Well, we we are all surges. I mean, it's it's. I think it was but kind it's of. It's it is a niche. It was it's a niche. Yeah, yeah. It's a niche. it was it was organ. Mine was organismic and evolutionary biology. That was That's o so cool. o OEB was the this the niche. Yeah. So. Yeah. We didn't have like quite the niche, so we did, um, I did biology with a focus on computational science, so like kind of computer science and biology. Okay. Model population yeah. And yeah, I, I tried to go the computer science route, and I learned very quickly that yeah. I couldn't stay up coding at four in the morning, and... Editor's note. Wimp. Be, a, <laughs> be an athlete as well. It was yeah. not a... Not a good combination. I, I my well, my dad's like you. You have to go into uh, computer uh -oh. science. It uh, also <laughs> also the son of immigrants, and it, you know, I know that very yeah. much pushed for us to you know work very hard and you know make sure we were ahead of everything. As I know, Sharon, same same deal. Yeah. Well, there, there's no backup plan, right? Like there's yeah. no plan B. Yeah, exactly. And they know like, there's no plan yeah, B. Yeah, As exactly. in like, yeah. you need plan A and we're going to give you plan A. And and that's, <laughs> you know, and that's about it. Um, well, that's too funny. Anyway, like listening to myself, one thing I realized I was not cool in college or in high school. Like as I'm, as I'm kind of like talking about all this, um, I didn't have the issue with coding at four in the morning athletics. I don't have an athletic bone in my body. <laughs> but now, but now, but you, you know, it's uh, now you're in Michigan where athletics is a huge deal. Uh, you, you get to oh, I can yourself. watch it. I oh, can, you can watch it. it. I just okay. can't oh, do okay. it. <laughs> So you, so you kind of alluded to the multiple cities, so Philly, New York, spent a little bit of time in Boston, now mm -hmm. Ann Arbor, so definitely uh, made a couple couple different uh, moves. So right off the bat, which which city is your favorite and, and why? Oh, Philly. It's so gritty. Uh, okay. It's so right. real. There's just so much yeah. truth in that city. Yeah. Um, 
really down to earth, like very direct, yeah. very raw place. And I just appreciate that uh, mm -hmm. very, very much. And, you know, there's no way to get out of Philly without having really thick skin, which was super protective for surgical residency and pretty much life. Mm. So um, hands down Philly. Okay. Love it. All right. Love it. Yeah, it's it's fun to have you on the podcast. You're you're another superstar from the 2011 to 2012 MIS Fellows right? class. Uh, <laughs> we recently had on Ross Goldberg, and of course, your name has come up several times by many of our guests. The, the funny thing about that year for me is that you you aren't actually able to make it to the Fellows course in Arizona. No, and, yeah, I and, couldn't go. But based on how influential you you were that year and beyond. For the longest time, I thought you were there. I was like, "Oh yeah, remember when when you were at the?" the you're like, "No, actually, I I couldn't go." And I, it was it was such a funny thing because I think for like five years, I was like, "Oh yeah, Dana, she was at the at the fellows course. We like hung out for like a week, and you were you were you weren't there." Well, I'm glad you thought I was there because I really wanted to be there. So I maybe know. like your memory can carry my memory. <laughs> now there were like all these super strict industry rules in Boston oh, and Ratner okay. was like, you can't go. And I'm like, oh. boss says I can't go, can't go. Right. Like, yeah, and, yeah. But it was so funny because I had such FOMO and I felt, you know, it's kind of funny because I say this all the time, like little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. And mm -hmm. you know, that stage in your career, like in residency where you think every little thing is like the end of the world. And I was like, Oh, I couldn't go to the fellows course. I'm going to have no friends. I'm not going to know anyone in my class. And it seems like this huge, you know, thing at the time. And then later, like, of course, I'm going to meet everybody and see them everywhere. Like, this is no big deal. So, which obviously ended up happening. Thank goodness. Cause I mean, I'm biased, but I think we personally have the best fellowship class of all time. Aww. I mean, I think so too. Sorry, I sure. mean, I, I, I mean, it's uh, I know I'm a little bit biased as well, but I mean, I just think of some of the, the people that I constantly see from that year and, and it's just been so fun to see them yeah. kind of blossom in multiple different uh, fields. And, and also our, I mean, we always try to get together whenever we're, we're at these meetings. And right. so, yeah. So cool. So cool. I don't think people appreciate the camaraderie that happens uh trans trans uh across the state lines yeah and i mean even programs i mean we're across multiple programs and you know i think there's a there's a, a fellowship that occurs when when you're doing these uh subspecialty trainings yeah well sure. let's let's kind of hit on that so your your clinical practice so you obviously spent time at at uh massachusetts general hospital in boston so through the harvard system it's uh be interested to hear your take on what it was like to to be there um so maybe start with that but then your focus uh, ultimately landed on foregut bariatrics and hernia and uh, after you talk a little bit of maybe about your fellowship maybe i'm going to have you pick another favorite uh out of those three which is your favorite and and no hints uh no hints sharon okay well, let, only one let, my just, answer. just let her answer the question for <laughs> once okay <laughs> so fellowship is awesome right like your fellow, your job is to operate all day, all the time and do the coolest cases and just learn and yeah. really just kind of be immersed for a year. And I think I appreciated it while it was happening, which is kind of unique because usually like like residency, I totally appreciate in retrospect, but maybe didn't appreciate every single day. But fellowship was like one of those times um, that I was just like, every single day was amazing because you got to learn from all these different people and really refine and kind of nuance your skin. And it's funny because I never thought I would be a bariatric surgeon. I always thought I would do bariatrics to say facile on the foregut because I knew going out, nobody kind of rolls out a red carpet for you. Mm. It's like, here's a foregut practice, right? You're, there's not that many cases, thoracics involved, everybody's involved. But I didn't want to let that skill set kind of denigrate. But then over time, I really started enjoying that and seeing the impact it had on patients. I do everything. And to be honest with you guys, I consider myself a general surgeon, like whatever comes into my door, I will see and I will treat and I love taking care of people and the weirder the problem and the stranger the problem, and the more operations that they've had and the more <laughs> kind of things that were done. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to take it. So I don't have one specific love anymore, but I think sadly I've fallen a little bit in love with revisional surgery, whether it's hernia or bariatrics, because to me, that's kind of where you meet people at your worst, at their worst, and you kind of didn't cause the problem. They didn't 
you know, they're just in a bad place and you can do sort of, or try to help them do the most good, you know, to get out of the problem that they had. So um, it's, it's funny. I think people, as they move along in their career, try to do the less complex stuff. And I think I find myself enjoying kind of the, the more um, complex stuff as time goes on. There's probably kind of a bell curve there. You, you might, you might be in that period when you're, you know, you want to do it. And then, you know, I do think eventually there's kind of this tail off time when we, we start getting a little tired and maybe don't want to do the the big revision anymore, but you're, you're probably in that sweet spot right now. Yeah. In about five years, I'll be a lipoma surgeon. So the start. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, 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 yeah, hey, exactly. don't knock it. Don't try it. I'm not knocking it. I'm like yeah. in about five, six years after another yeah. couple of cases, like I've had this yeah. week, I'm going to be like, I lipomas know. are looking amazing. Celeb yeah. Celebrities get lipomas too, you know. Everybody yeah, yeah. does. They're, yeah. It's a disease. It's important. <laughs> they, they deserve important. the same attention. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> it is. Oh, man. Saving lives. Yeah. <laughs> Saving lives. Um, okay, so your first job at a fellowship was uh, uh, in New York, Stony Brook. Yeah. Right? So my first job was awesome. Um, it was a super high risk, high reward situation. I was coming out of fellowship and Kevin, you remember this. It was mm -hmm. in 2012, which was the year of the ACA. And there were yeah. no jobs, like yeah. literally, like there were no jobs because people didn't really know how to budget and forecast sort of based on the new economic reality and what was this new kind of like health system could look like and there was yeah. there was just nothing and in addition to nothing i was super geographically restricted to certain areas um just for personal and other reasons and at that time it was like all the stars aligned rory Pryor took on a role at stony brook in a program that had no bariatrics no hurt like no mis and she's like come build this with me and i'm like mm -hmm. Oh my God, this is scary and amazing. And, and I did, and it ended up being kind of the most high risk, high reward situation. And yeah. I really learned a ton from that job, um, just in sort of pragmatic realities of what does it mean to build a practice? What does it mean to scale a practice? What does it mean to, you know, have patient volume? How do you start a research program with zero resources and zero data? Like, how do you teach residents who've like never seen anything outside of a lab coli to get complex? How do you start a fellowship program, right? And so that was like a super formative first couple of years of my life. And it was really hard, but it was super rewarding because I feel like I got 15 years of education and four. It's amazing. You, you were only there four years, huh? Yeah, yeah it seems 2012 like, yeah. to 2016. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and yeah, I, I, I remember your time there. I mean, you were doing so much and, you know, as you mentioned, uh, settled at university of Michigan and, and you're, you're not only replicating what you did there, but, but taking it to the next level, you also founded an, a fellowship program at university of Michigan. Uh, you've been there since 2016. So talk a little bit about the decision to move there. And then also, you know, clearly you applied a lot of the lessons you learned from Stony Brook and have, have taken U of M to the next level on, on the MIS front for sure. Yeah, my my favorite joke right now, well, now Des is here, but every time we were interviewing last year, I'm like, we are the number one fellowship who's never trained a fellow because it was true because we had a trained <laughs> fellow, but we were interviewed. And if you didn't oh. laugh at my joke on the interview trail, I knew it wasn't going to like work out <laughs> for all of us. I'm like, come on, if you can't laugh at that, like you have no sense of humor. So how many people <laughs> laughed and didn't laugh to that at that joke? What was the percentage? It was... You know, it was like 70% laughed. About yeah, another that sounds about right. kind of looked at me like I was super awkward. And then another 10 <laughs> just like gave me side eye. And I was like, so, whatever. Uh, <laughs> residents, residents, listen up, okay? Uh, there, there are other ways we weed out your applications. It's not just uh, the uh, absite scores. <laughs> when you when you tell terrible dad and mom jokes, yeah, and laugh, just yeah, just a courtesy. Laugh. Just, a courtesy just throw us a bone here. I mean, we know that it's not supposed to be like on a stand up here, you know. <laughs> I know. But, but you know, my my favorite resident. I can't say favorite, but my favorite resident is now Dana's fellow. Oh my God, oh. he's amazing. He's Dad. Oh, nice. And he ironically coming full circle was a medical student at my Mount Sinai. I didn't know oh. him then, but when oh, I was a resident wow. there, he's okay. like, a, he's like a life goals human being. He is just literally like, he's a wonderful human. Yeah, he's um, arguably, arguably one of the best candidates that year. Yeah, well, and that was our first year of fellowship, so I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, and that so, was our first choice, and it ended up happening. 
So he's he's very, very (laughs) happy, but it it just kind of shows you, you know, um, just because it's a young program doesn't mean that it's necessarily a a bad program. Also, the reverse is true. There are some programs that are very old and historic that, you know, may not be the best fit for um, certain people. I'll tell you at at our hospital, Cedars-Sinai, we have an amazing orthopedic program. We didn't have a residency. Um, We should have, we should have had it. But our volume was more than UCLA and USC combined. Mm. Um, we just never had it. Uh, and then they decided to do a residency. And let me tell you, starting from the day one of class one, it became among the top um, felt, uh, residencies in the nation and the top one in Los Angeles. Immediately. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to really sitting down and being thoughtful and intentional and asking yourself the question of, what does an MIS fellowship in 2023 and beyond look like, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because when many of our fellowships were designed, MIS was just a technique, right? And now as you see things evolve and the council involved and everything evolves, it seems like it's a bariatrics program. It's a hernia program. Yes. It's an endoscopy program. You have certification in this and you have certification in that. And so really taking all of these new headwinds into consideration, taking a lot of the subspecialization into consideration and really sitting down and asking, what does a graduate today need to go out to be competitive on a job market, independent of whether or not they want to do academics or community-based, you know, what are those skill sets, soft skills and hard skills that, you know, they need. It was a really fun exercise to think about. And, you know, and I think that's honestly sometimes what makes you a little bit competitive, even if you're new, people trust that will get you successful. So there's some street credit, I think, involved. But more importantly, it's what you have to offer and the intentionality. And, you know, we were clear sort of with our purpose. And I think that was a draw, too. We know what we can do, what we can't do, and what we think people need as they're coming out. So this is the first year then. This this is the, yeah, that's yeah. great. Congratulations. That's great. And what was your draw to start to move to Michigan for your current job? Um, oh, yeah, I forgot about that question because we got to start talking about Des and I was all excited because he's so wonderful. Um, so, you know, everything was going great at Stony Brook. I loved Rory. I was like super happy. And when I got there, I knew that I really loved academics and I loved academics in a way, not because I loved publishing papers, but because I wanted to have impacts and I wanted to improve sort of at scale patient care and quality of care that we provide for patients and kind of what we do. And when I got to Stony Brook, we had, I think I was telling you, we had like no data and no analyst and nothing. And so my research career actually started one through SAGES with a career development grant. And that's why, I mean, I'm always, I've always loved this organization. I'm always indebted to this organization, but I am an academic surgeon today because of the organization and because they believed in me and gave me resources when I had none. Love it. And that's why no, it's the absolute truth. And that's why I will always give any minute of time I have back and help foster other people who want to do the same through the organization, because I honestly would not be where I'm at if it wasn't for the support of the society. So super grateful. And so, and so anyway, I had to figure out what to do. And um, I was researching and I found out about this data set called Sparks, which was a state of New York administrative data. And then I found out it was free. And then, so that solved that problem that I could get it for free because I was at a state institute, but I had no partnership and I had no analyst. So I went to the New York Department of Health and somehow sweet talked two MPHs there and this guy, Foster Gustin, who was the um, MD, like one of the doctors in the New York State Department of Health to believe in our mission. And they did my first, analytics and they did my first thing. So I always share this like paper. It's not one of my best papers and it was in surgical endoscopy, but to me, it was the most impactful paper because it was a collaboration with us and the New York State Department of Health. And it was like the anchor that launched the career. So now I have this data set and I have the support from the state and we kind of get an analyst and I kind of build this research and we're doing, we're like all firing, all fire ahead. We went from publishing zero papers. We were like, publishing 30 papers a year and everything's going and going. And so by every single metric, you know, we're like killing it in academic surgery. But like I step back and I'm like, well, what am I doing? I'm putting out papers, but what are they doing? And I'm leading a group, but I'm not, I need mentorship because I'm not being able to do sort of the impactful work that I want to do. 
So I'm like, all right, I'm going to get an MPH. So then I went and I got an MPH, delightful degree, fun fact, it ended up being an executive uh, master's in healthcare management at Columbia, which was awesome, but not the MPH I thought I was getting. But fun fact, it gave me a ton of skills that I use now in my daily life, like because it was more, it, yeah, it was, I'm sure it was more like business accounting related. and help. Yeah. Right. Like, who knew I needed yeah. it? Yeah. But it See, ended it up being, yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> ended up being the degree I never knew I needed. Super <laughs> 10 helpful. years later. Yeah. But not, I mean, not the intended, exactly, not the intended. All life is like happenstance, luck, and circumstance, right? So, so then, um, so what happened? I just realized I wasn't kind of having impact, but my work was getting like, a little bit noticed just because like there was a lot of it I didn't particularly think it was very good but there was a lot of it and I got connected to um Justin Dimmick I guess he started noticing some of my work and being an MIS surgeon himself him and I started talking and one day I was talking to him and he's like what are your goals and I'm like I want to be an impactful surgeon scientist and we talked about it and it was clear that I didn't I had wonderful mentorship but not the right mentorship to do that and when I was looking like, well, who is changing the world? I mean, it was Michigan, everything that was mm. coming out of there and the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy was having large scale impact and effect at med you know, policy level at providers and what we we're doing. And I'm like, oh my God, I need to go learn from them. Mm -hmm. And then um, I was lucky enough that, you know, they offered me, I, I didn't really apply for a job. Justin's like, do you want to come work here? And I'm like, I got to think about it. And then I ended up coming um, and when I showed up, they're like, we need people to do these types of operations. I'm like, I don't care what operations you need me to do. I'm a general surgeon. I'll do whatever you need me to do. And sort of the rest is the rest is history. And it, it was a it was a hard move because I loved Rory and I loved Stony Brook and it was like really great. But for my academic career, it was the right move because um, I think I learned exponentially how to you know, translate work into action, which is ultimately what I wanted to do. And That's wasn't your story. experience in Michigan that kind of helped fuel all your leadership development and, and yeah. interest in that research field? 100%. So, you know, it was, this is like the craziest story, but I sat down, you know, my first day, I was like at Michigan, I had such imposter syndrome because everybody there was so smart. I just felt like so stupid. And I'm like, oh my God, they're going to find me out at any given time. Like, I'm just like, this is a ridiculous situation. So no, it's true. So I was sitting in, I'll tell a terrible story about that in a second, but like I was sitting in Justin's office and he sat down to me and he's like, well, what's going to be your niche? And I'm like, I do health services research. He's like, everybody does health services research. He's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'd actually never thought about that, right? Like no one had actually ever pressed me on that because we were just turning. And I mean, this talks about mindfulness. We're just turning and turning and turning. I never actually stopped and said, well, what do I want to do? What do I want to study? What is interesting to me? And that's when I fell in love. Um, Sharon, we talked about this a little bit ago with um, what's called implementation yeah. science, yeah. Uh, which is really trying to understand and bridge the gap between evidence and action. And it was like such a sweet spot and such a fit for me because I'm all, I mean, I don't know how you feel, Kevin, but like, I'm always so frustrated. I'm like, we know what the right thing to do is and we're not doing the right things. All of our patients can't be snowflakes and unicorns. Like we need to do these things. And then how do you get sort of the sustained behavior change? And that was just a natural fit for me. And um, since then, like, you know, the things that I love are thinking about implementation trials and how do you get evidence-based practice into actual practice, um, both at an organizational, but really also at scale. Yeah, that, that, that's been really impressive to look through um, as your, your journey has, has uh, you know, continued and, and certainly put out a lot of research in it, but it's also clear that it's a big part of your day to day, uh, you know, that you integrate what you've learned into this busy clinical and personal life. And, you know, you stay on top of the developmental side of your trainees and your junior faculty. So, you know, how do, how do you do that? How do you, it, I mean, how do you do both the, you know, the, the paper side of it and the manuscript side, but also make sure that, you know, you're, you're integrating it into, to your, you know, the developmental side of your, your team. Yeah, I think I think the key word there is synergy. Everything you do needs to like stem 
from what you love. So I get frustrated in clinical practice because I don't know something. So then I study it so that I know what to do. Then I wanna know not only how I should do it, but how other people should do it. And then you build teams. One human being, I think in surgery, sometimes we get locked into this, I'm the captain of the ship. Everybody rises and falls you know, around me, but that's not true, right? We're part of a team and we have to trust our team to kind of work at the top of their level. Wait, that's not true? No, no. I mean, it is. Wait a minute. I've been it trying that for. It is, that's, it is if you're being that's, sued, unfortunately. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, good if point. You're being yeah, sued, it is, but like in reality, it's not. Um, Damn it! Uh, but I've been doing this wrong for ten. I wish we had had done this. We should have started Sage's stories ten years ago. I would have saved I so know. much time. Yeah. Um, but the key is this: finding great people, like surrounding yourself with them and empowering them and staying out of their way to do great things. And the only reason you can do stuff is if you're a multiplier and have everybody doing stuff around you. And to do that requires shared purpose. Everybody has to kind of believe in the end goal that you're trying to achieve and followership. And I don't mean followership, like people follow you around, but people believe that you're going to take care of them. And you mean and not like it. Instagram followers? It, oh like God, it. no, I don't even know how to talk. <laughs> Those are very important. Don't <laughs> knock it. <laughs> TikToks, Instagrams, uh, forget it. So, I, sorry, I, just I had to say that. I mean, yeah. I'm like that old dinosaur now. I just pluralize like a social media platform. I'm like the Instagrams and the TikToks. Like this is uh, arg, It's all this craziness. <laughs> the, kids, and the kids these days. These with these TikTok. Yeah, these TikTokers. And... <laughs> I don't even know. People are dancing. No. Um, but I mean, I think, I think that's the key. I think sometimes people view success as a zero sum game and that, that if somebody else is successful, like it somehow it diminishes your success. But I think if you break that mindset and you're really open that everybody can have success and that you kind of really build as a team and you make people successful around you, like you can accomplish anything. And then if you create work that impacts every touch point, like impacts your clinical work, impacts your administrative work, impacts your research work, then it doesn't really feel like work, right? You're just fixing problems. And sometimes they're at scale with one data set. Sometimes they're in the section with another data set. And sometimes they're in a clinic with an individual, but it's all sort of the same. Do you relate to that, Kevin? I feel like every institution yeah. is running in its own way. And uh, Dana and her chair, just Justin Dimmick, seem to be on the same wavelength. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes their system so successful. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely resonate with that. And, and I, I mean, we're much smaller ship and, um, but I'm, there's certain things that you mentioned that I'm, I'm trying to replicate with, with a small team where, you know, the clinical work feeds into the research work feeds yeah. into the developmental work that allows the, you know, and, and I, I mean, I kind of joke about this, but it's, it's like, you know, I think all of us are kind of at that point where we don't, we don't need more like lines on our CV. Like we don't need, I mean, we're, we're, we're all kind of publishing and doing great in, in that regard, but, but yeah. someone else does and someone else needs to build theirs. And so if we can find a way to say, well, I can help you along the way and help you build this up. And this team starts to, to develop. At the same time, I, I mean, I love the concept of imp implementation science, and I, I, I love the description of it. It's, it's certainly not something that I was too familiar with it, as a concept, but I mean, you're familiar with it as a frustration, but not as a like scientific mm, yeah. effort. But um, I love hearing that story. It was actually one of my questions for for later was was how you gotten involved in it. And it's, it's it's fantastic. It's a great story and. I think everyone listening would would be able to resonate with sort of understanding how where that cognitive dissonance is between knowing how to do something or knowing what's supposed to be done and then like what actually happens. Well, and I think if there's like any burgeoning administrators or healthcare health services researchers, I really think that like our next gener generation of research, it's not enough to identify a gap that you have to identify the gap in the context of how you're gonna fix the gap. So like papers that are like, well, you know, blacks versus whites have this or females versus males have this. Well, okay. And like, what's 
do you know what I mean? Like that's like very yeah. 15 years. And and what are you gonna do about it? Yeah. Like you identify gaps. So there there really needs to be sort of an understanding of like and plan about that because otherwise we're just generating and churning, but like we're not really sure like how to actually enact change and like change practice and and you know and kind of what are the things that actually matter. Um I think I told Sharon this story a while ago, so I'm sorry to repeat myself, but like, I'll tell you, know, I'll tell you some of the things that are like super, an, an example of why this is so important and like figuring this out. It was like kind of this aha moment for me with like research, which was, you know, in 2020, amazing year, we um, started a hernia registry in the state of Michigan. So Michigan's like a super unique place because we have insurance sponsored collaboratives. So 72 hospitals voluntarily in the state of Michigan report data at a population level um, that's abstracted both for QI and then you can use for research purposes under a data use agreement where everybody has to be identified. So our big one is called the Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative, which abstracts um, you know, data, I think we were looking at it from like 1500 surgeons across the state and, you know, for various different conditions. And in 2020, I created kind of like a spinoff of that, which was the MSQC core, which is our um, uh, hernia collaborative and registry, which had nuanced variables, but it was really cool because it's not surgeon entered, it's abstracted. So data abstractors just go at random and pull from the population a representative sample to figure out kind of what are we doing as a state and how are our outcomes as a state. So one of the things that we noticed when we started doing this before the Medicare changes, of course, Medicare kind of fixed this for us, was that, and Sharon, I'm sure you're not going to be shocked by this, there was a high level of missingness for hernia size and like mesh. So like <laughs> all of these op notes, they yeah. were being abstracted. Yeah. And our level That's of missingness, they're like, we did a hernia repair. It yeah. was done. Had whole, had whole closed hole. Hernia was repaired. And Hernia, and a mesh hernia was identified, <laughs> hernia identified, <laughs> hernia <laughs> closed. And and so, you know, all kidding aside, that was like a high, like, like we had like a 40%. I'm like, how can we have a 40% yeah. missingness rate yeah, for like 40%, a yeah. standard of care variable? Yeah. Like this should never be missing. Like mm. this is the crux of the operation. Like yeah. what size is the hernia? And what and size is the mesh? I mean, it's exactly, like, just... I mean, it's really, we're not even talking about, like I would just settle for even just knowing what the hernia size was. So or where it is. <laughs> I know we started this like statewide initiative. We're like, we're going to fix this. We're going to put out these synoptic op notes. We're going to help surgeons. We didn't talk to anybody. We just decided that this was going to be the fix. So we put out these synoptic op notes. And lo and behold, in the sites that we had put these op notes in, the rate of missingness dropped to like 5%. And then in these other sites, it was still at 40. And I'm like, we are amazing. This is the best intervention. Let's totally scale this. Uh -huh. But before I did it, I had one of our research assistants, who's actually at Stanford now, Leah Delaney. She's a surgery resident. She's amazing. I'm like, why don't you call and get some information and interview the surgeons to figure out how we can best implement this op note in other places? Fun fact, none of them had even heard of the op note. Like none of them, not one of them. They were like, wait, what? They're like, oh, we had that? They're like, oh, we tried that once it was impossible to use. And what had happened was we had convinced the abstractors that this was really important. They were browbeating the surgeons involved to get the data but the op note was like never a factor. And so the reason I tell this story is That's because, fake. yeah, it's an example of something we worked. We almost scaled a relatively inexpensive, you know, intervention thinking we were gonna fix a problem, but that wasn't the actual solution. And that was a super long-winded way of saying, like we have to understand when things work, why they work and how to put things into place and make them work and then make sure they're working because of why you think they're working, because otherwise we're just wasting a ton of money, you know, on a ton of things and like not understanding kind of the impact that they're having. So it's I learned so from my failure. I mean, it's so silly. Yeah, I, I made a template and all these other doctors are using my template, but I know that it's, <laughs> they're not doing anything that they actually wrote in the template. I guarantee you they're not, it says, oh, discussion was had about all. No, I don't think they did any of that, but it's just a nice template. That they use. Yeah. It looks exactly well, the best like I I gave them a template and they were doing the template, but then they weren't writing an op note and then they weren't getting paid yeah. because they weren't billing. Like, this is a whole situation. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, learned a lot. 
learned a lot. Okay, I'm going to change focus a little bit. Um, within your leadership development, I really, really enjoy that you also look at gender equity. You've done such a great job addressing gender gaps in surgery, specifically in leadership. You wrote a great book. I love your book, your DEI book. Oh, yeah, um, that, was awesome. that was fun. With that Colin. Was really, yeah. That's a really good book. Um, Thanks for contributing. Yeah, my chapter was written from the heart. I thank you for allowing me to do that. You know what? Yeah, no, you're perfect for that. I'm I'm especially thankful that you've taken on the gap issue in hernia care. <laughs> we've discussed this in a prior episode of my podcast, Hernia Talk Live. Um, maybe you can kind of give a little tidbit about this gender gap issue, why it's an important part of specifically surgical leadership. You know, I think, I mean, it's not just me. I think um, about four or five years, it was Caprice Greenberg and the NIH and they're like came out with this whole concept around sex as a biological variable and also thinking about race and historically marginalized populations. And the reason that's important is that all of our standards, data, ranges, treatments are really based on sort of a monolithic or homogenous population. And, and it has greater impact. I think you might've seen some of the New England Journal of Medicine work that was looking at pulse oximeters and um, black patients and having lower you know, rates, even though, and then resulting in over-treatment. There's a ton of data on under and over-treatment and cancer care, vascular surgery care for different populations, and then um, differentials and outcomes. And I think it's extraordinarily important the same way that we think about how do you put evidence into practice, how do you assure equity in the evidence that you're putting into practice? Because kind of garbage in, garbage out. And so I think hernia is like a perfect example of a, of a field where we know there's an equity for females. We know females do worse, but we just don't, we just don't like, yeah, females do worse. And we just kind of stop there. And I don't think it's surprising. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you just look at inguinal hernia, if you look at the four or five formative RCTs that drive all of the care we do and all of the recommendations we make for inguinal hernia, the watchful waiting and then the follow-ups and then the VA study about laparoscopic versus open, in all of those five studies, which is what every guideline's based on that are actually followed for the most part, all of those studies included, I think, seven females total or maybe 17 females total. And they're all like ASA yeah, one seven. two white males, right? And so- Thousands of males, seven females, yeah. Yeah, and, and very few um, persons of color or different socioeconomic status. So like, how can you expect to extrapolate data from one population to other populations that you don't study? And so, you know, Des went and presented for me at HS. I'm sorry, I couldn't go down and see you. I had some last minute yeah, stuff. Yeah, you did a great job. It, um, but it was like all about kind of what are the trends and funding and what are the next generation stuff. And, you know, I gave him three key points, right? Evidence with a lens on equity, evidence with like a lens on implementation and kind of how, you know, it's, it's put through and then kind of, you know, I'm not going to use the word AI because everybody uses the word AI, but just kind of oh, you just used it. Yeah, <laughs> twice. Exactly. I know, but I'm not even going to use it. But like, say IA. Like, just change it I, up. I, just I, say, I know. IA. Uh... <laughs> but determining, but having better sort of predictive models. And, and to that point, it's funny, we have this incredible researcher, Akbar Walji at Michigan, and he's probably at the forefront of understanding natural language processing and risk management. He, I think he's gotten like, between career development awards and NIH awards, I think he's gotten somewhere near like 10 to $15 million. And some of the projects that he's looking at is sort of um, how do you use natural language processing in low resource countries like in Africa to replace pathologists, right? So that you know that you have under resourcing, you know that you need things read. How can you like overcome essentially um, Re, you know, resource constraints using NLP when you can. And he said that they've made a million interventions and zero have been implemented and used despite some of the, you know, being kind of really good. And I was just thinking about this in the context of the conversation that we were having the other day. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a huge, uh, huge uh, area of interest right now. Um, as Sharon mentioned, I go relatively frequently to Africa and, and that's one of the things 
that I'm going for in this next week is actually with the University of Michigan group and Grace. Yeah, Kings. I want to hear about that. Who yeah, so with? we're I going to no Nigeria idea. with All Safe, the All Safe group. So a oh, lot of with, year. with um with Grace Kim. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yep. that's so, amazing. Yeah, so a lot of this is based on kind of low cost, the simulation, uh, virtual based, and then we are also trying to eventually incorporate AI so that we can have also kind of pattern recognition abilities for, you know, avoidance of injuries, avoidance of things, you know, that we know, uh, once we get more and more data, we can help people. It's not that it will replace, uh, humans, but certainly can, um, can augment their abilities. So very interesting. And uh, yeah, a lot of this work's coming out of Michigan as, as always, uh, you're, you're sort of at the forefront, as you mentioned earlier. So I want to know, you know, I went through all your accomplishments. We're just, because there's so much we want to hear about you, uh, what you do, but given everything you're doing, how do you manage your time? Oh my God. I have like, I don't know what I, I have the best life ever. I, I really do. I feel like I'm very blessed. Um, I, I have a, a job that sort of prioritizes family and everything. So we don't do a lot of 5 p.m., 6 p.m., 7 p.m. type meetings that I think can really hinder or get in the way. Those podcasts. Um, yeah, this podcast no, is at no, 7 no. p.m. But, Eastern time, by the this, way. But this, <laughs> Sorry. This, is, this is joyful for me. Okay. And it's just and it's just about kind of like, I, I guess it's just a, not compartmentalizing, but just being really efficient with time. So when I'm at work, I'm at work, right? I think a lot of time, um, sometimes we're inefficient with time because we have like little gaps of procrastination. So if I'm in between our cases and I have a long turnover, instead of getting frustrated, I'll review a paper. If instead of getting frustrated, I'll edit something. Instead of getting frustrated, you know, I'll do something, which means I don't have to do it later, jetting in on my off time. Um, when I'm, you know- That's, a, a, that's a huge uh, hack. And, and I've, I've recently- Recognize that too. Yeah. I, I mean, just walk away, uh, pick up a paper, do something. Yeah. And it's taken me a lot longer to realize, like, don't, yeah. don't stew, just, just find something else. And you're right. Then it takes it away yeah. from your later work. I'm actually annoyed when my OR turnover times are like really good now. I'm like, come on guys, I needed this hour to get, <laughs> get this paper done. I'm like, what are you doing? Now we're going to be efficient today, but I have all these deadlines, you know, coming up. That's great. You're like, um, I was counting on a two and a half hour turnover. Like, what is I this? I'm like, oh, today's it. efficiency day. Like, come on people. No. Um, <laughs> But use, use time wisely, you know, use time efficiently and build a team. If you think, if you micromanage everything and expect that you need to do everything, you're never going to do it. Pick good people, surround yourself good with good people, let them shine and then be there to support them, you know, when they, when they need you. And some weeks are really bad and some weeks are really, you know, good. Um, one of the things I got into the habit of, which I never did before, but Fine. I mean, I was a little bit in the weeds, like when I took over this new job, because it was so it was pretty big. And I was just getting used to everything. But and then every, you know, you start getting used to things, you know, what's a fire, you know, it's not a fire, what can wait, what, you know, needs to be addressed right away. Um, but I started carving out like specific times and setting aside like a time Thursday afternoon, like I'm going to block three hours, and I'm going to write, or I'm going to edit, or I'm going to be there for my mentees during this time. And the natural inclination is to fill that time. But I think also what you learn over time is not every single meeting needs to happen within a week. So what was happening, for instance, is every medical Ooh, student, every single person who wanted to meet with me, we were putting on like right away. And I'm like, you know what? If a medical student waits two weeks instead of seven days, like nothing bad is going to happen. And then the other thing is like being thoughtful about what can be meetings and what can be emails and like limiting meetings that don't need to be meetings. And then most meetings don't need an hour. You can be done in 30 minutes if you're thoughtful. And if you come with an agenda and you come with like the one or two things that you're trying to solve as part of that meeting. So again, I think it's just about maximizing kind of efficiency with the time that you have. And then when I'm home, I'm home. Like I won't answer Like when I'm with my kiddos and like I'm home, like from whatever time that is to when they go to bed, like that's what I do. And then if there's stuff, then I'll pick it back up after. Great uh, lessons, great tips. Um, I, I know we could, again, I was just 
struggling on what we we could focus on given the the vast amount of uh, topics that we go on. We could go on for hours on research, leadership, clinical fronts. But uh, I also don't want to forget all the work you do outside of your quote unquote day job, which is in, is all the work you've done for Sages. So it's always fun to hear. You know, you you alluded to getting the Sages grant early on, but when did you first join Sages? What was your uh, introduction to the society? I joined Sages and I went to my first meeting when I was a PGY3. And my first introduction to the society was, I was like really blessed to be at Mount Sinai with Barry Sulky and Dan Heron and Brian Jacob and um, yeah. people, yeah, people who just loved the organization and was like, you need to get involved with this organization. And from the first meeting, I was totally uh, hooked. I thought it was fun. And the one thing about me is like, I only like, I thrive in areas and cultures that are fun. Like if you plucked me and put me into like a really bad culture, I would never produce as much because I would get very introverted and kind of like taken to myself. And so Sage is just, it was fun. It was innovative. They seemed really set on development of others. They seemed really set on sort of really cool missions and values around innovation and excitement and and I just thought it was like a really great time. And so that was my first introduction was um, when I was a third year resident and then I joined and I've never looked back. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have never looked back as a understatement. Um, you are clearly a leader and are part of some of the internal discussions about where the society wants to go in the future. And maybe be helpful to kind of give a snapshot uh, to our listeners of, you know, what Sage's leadership and, uh, you know, groups are working on for the upcoming few years? I, I think this is, like all things, a really exciting time for the organization. I think a lot of organizations, a lot of health systems right now following the pandemic with a lot of the headwinds from interest rates and financial and sort of all the different things are having an opportunity to really kind of think about sort of their strategic initiatives and priorities. I always look at periods of sort of, I won't call it stress, but like periods of change or unrest, like we're in now as huge opportunities um, to evolve as the evolutionary biologist in me and think, and, you know, and recenter and refocus on, you know, what, what does it mean? I think at the core, yeah, this is becoming is. full circle. This it evolutionary, is. all these dorks, these organismic and evolutionary biology dorks at the, you but know, like, the nerdiest thing ever, and the also nerdiest. the best thing ever. It's also the best thing ever, yeah. <laughs> and so last year we did when um, John was uh, president. You know, we did a strategic retreat, and it was all about sort of reverse innovation, like what can you give up to go forward, and kind of this concept around sort of less is more. And I think what's true of the organization is it will always hold true to the core values of innovation and patience, right? I think at the center and at the core of the organization are the care that we take of our patients and the mentorship and sponsorship and care that we take of one another. And how do we continue to innovate in a world when we don't even know sometimes what it means to be an MIS surgeon, right? Like we kind of alluded to that in the fellowship, like what, what does that even mean? And so thinking about Pat's leadership and sort of big initiatives moving forward, um, I think that focusing on sort of the environmental impact of what we're doing and the green OR and you know green is gonna be a, a really huge thing. I think a continued lens on equity, inclusion and minimally invasive therapies and in other, you know, in other areas and helping to expand that to other countries, safe surgery across the globe will always be um, really important research, research efforts, how do we align with industry? How do we align with payers? How do we align with government um, around providing um, you know, equitable resources to help them attain the research they need to do, understanding this lens in equity, as well as conducting our own you know, opportunities around how do we kind of create and disseminate best practice. And I keep using the word equity, but I do think that we will always continue our lens and our focus on sort of diversity, equity, inclusion, and what does it mean to kind of foster that both within our organization and across. One of my proudest things and my most, the thing I think when I reflect on all the things that I've done in Sages and for Sages, the one that has the most 
meaning for me was sort of the We Are Sages committee. And that was sort of the brainchild of um, Dan Jones. And he started it during his presidency. And he tasked um, me. And at that time, I picked Jason Kuhn and Hope Jackson, who's now my partner at Michigan, to sit down and think about our climate as an organization, what's going well and what's not going well. And I think we were the first organization, I think, I, to send out a climate survey to kind of look under the hood, to look at our dirty laundry, to see those areas and opportunities where we can improve. And I've been so proud to watch that, you know, continue to flourish now as the DLPD committee and now um, into this fundamentals of leadership development that Jenny Shao has created and she's running. And I, I really think, you know, what's, what's kind of like avant-garde now was a little bit early, you know, when we started doing it, but watching that evolve has been just super meaningful. Yeah, thank you for all that. We're getting towards the end of the podcast. And of course, we can't complete an episode of Sages Stories without hearing the We Are the Sages moment from our guest. We are the sages. Sing it, everybody. We are the ones who make you bright our day. So let's start dreaming. Have you had a good time tonight? So for this portion, we like to hear your favorite Sages moment. Um, before you say what it is, let me oh, share gosh. you a funny story <laughs> from the meeting that you program chaired. So in 2021, you and um, Adnan Al-Saidi, you were the program chairs for uh, Sages 2021 in Las Vegas, Nevada, which was really the first in-person meeting coming back after the pandemic. And of course, Las Vegas would be the, the first choice uh, to be there during the <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so get, get I, I it was, all out there. I showed up at a very early morning session. I'm like walking to the session while half the hotel is walking to their hotel room. Finally, <laughs> and for some reason, I chose to wear this extremely bright red lipstick. Kevin, you can't relate to this. I cannot. <laughs> but I was wearing a mask. And I had to go up there and speak. And I took off my mask to do my speech and my talk. And then I put the mask on and went back to my seat. And I had the mask on for the rest of the day, not knowing that my entire face. <laughs> oh, my gosh. From below my nose down to my chin was just red lipstick everywhere because the mask had spread it all. Even though technically I was wearing those like smudge proof uh, lipsticks. So I literally gave a talk and it may be on YouTube pretty soon. I don't know. <laughs> and the stages meeting that you chaired with lipstick all over my face. But on that note, Dana, what was your favorite Sage's story? So it's it's super, it's super on from a meeting. Oh my gosh, it's a super unfair question because probably 90% I can't actually tell on them. No, oh kidding. yeah, it is. It is oh yes, you can. <laughs> oh no, it's... I can't. No. I'm just, I'm just kidding. You have competition um, for sure. Yeah, you, you definitely have competition in that regard. Yeah. I you know what? We're we're gonna keep this G rated. Yeah, today. okay, we are okay, perfect. Um, it's G minus. It's okay. It's G minus. G minus. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, it's it's, this is gonna sound really kind of lame, but it's totally true. But actually being program chair at that meeting mm. was my favorite Sages moment yeah. of any Sages oh. meeting and watching like a year's worth of hard work and weekly, bi-weekly meetings and picking topics and, and having this vision and wanting to make your president happy and wanting people to have a good time under the pressure of the pandemic and then not knowing if people were going to come and then thinking we were going to have to shut down the meeting because there was that yeah. second yeah. wave of delta COVID. Oh my and so honestly getting off the That's plane true. in las vegas and just walking into that meeting and having a meeting after like literally being on the brink wondering if we were going to shut down and wondering if we were going to get canceled because do you know what I mean? There were so many watchdog groups about irresponsible behavior, physician, yeah. and then wondering if anybody was going to show up. Do you know what I mean? With the Delta wave, like coming in and seeing a reasonable crowd and that people came and that the world didn't fall apart 
and that we were all together again. And it was the first time I'd felt normal in two years. Um, that to me was like the best moment ever, like being at that yeah. president's reception on the first night and human beings were there and the meeting was happening. And I just took a deep breath and I sighed and I'm like, oh my God, it's going to happen. Yeah. And, and, um, and it's going to be okay. Like it's going to be gonna okay. Be, yeah. And, I, and, I, and that man, feeling that was of like, great it's going to be okay was mm -hmm. like transcendent from that yeah. meeting upwards because, mm -hmm. you know, that last two years, I mean, it, you know, it was, it was not okay, you know, for mm -hmm. a long time. And I just remember being like, we're gonna, it's, we're gonna be okay. And, um, yeah, that, and so I know that's, it's not as exciting. No, that's, it, that's a great, uh, but it was, that is a it was great dicey. Moment. It was dicey to the it last dicey. minute. Yeah. I remember telling Adnan, well, even if it's just you and me, we're going to put on a good meeting for just <laughs> you and me, and we're going to walk around and we're going to have a good time. Yeah, you, you were you were both very stately. Uh, I would say just really had a complete control and and omnipresence in that meeting. It was pretty. It was very cool. Yeah. Well, before yeah. we go, yeah. maybe you can give us a name for uh, a future guest. Uh, we'd like to give uh, our guests an opportunity to to uh, promote someone and and you know encourage someone to potentially be a Sage's Stories guest, especially since you've been named i don't i started to lose count of how many people named you so oh, you, really yeah yeah oh gosh that's like that's like a super humbling thing so i have like 50 names i could give you so tell me what what kind well, of just give us one one name i mean just like first one that comes to your i mean this is a you know it's kind of a up and coming slash you yeah. know storied leaders well, i mean we, we go back and forth i mean we we try to so Mix up and up. coming and I'm not biased just because she's at Michigan because she's only been there for like a month but I would I would talk to Jenny Shaw because I really yeah, think she that, has yeah yeah um okay I, I think she's done some really amazing, amazing. with this fundamental yeah. leadership development course and she's also really pushing the envelope kind of in hernia surgery and robotics and I think she has like a really thoughtful approach to many different aspects. She has like a really cool personal story. Like she's just, she's just awesome. And so I would consider um, okay. her. And then I'm like, can I plug all of my Michigan people? Because they're all, <laughs> I'm like, they're all amazing. You know, Annie Ellers, who's my mentee and yeah. awesome. You know, Sharon, she'd be somebody to go to have on hernia talk to. She's already she'd on. Love it. Yeah, I think she said that she yeah. was kind of, she, you know, if you want to talk to somebody who's spent, is spending her career trying to study sex is a biological variable yeah. in clinical mm -hmm. trials it's yeah. you know i already got her on to schedule well then you're well the those mentor. are those are great great and adnan yeah 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 he's he's coming he's and, coming and if you haven't talked to leanne feldman yet leanne we got is, her we got her oh got perfect her. Yeah. Yep, yeah you got her i'm like yeah. she's just like we snagged like, her and then then she had already been pot you know uh uh, featured in the cold steel podcast so we were like we were like a day day late and a dollar short and so we ended up we ended up <laughs> ours, was running, ours was better i think but i'm uh, sure it was she's just yeah. she's just delightful so i'm sure i'm sure you've got like all the um all you know kind of it's hard because you know who all the leadership is right. i'm just i think of yeah those. no that's great good stories. These, everyone has such great stories and Courtney Collins, she's really cool too. I don't know if you had her sharing on Hernia Talk or Sage's Stories. She's on my she's, list, yeah. Yeah, she's she's great. She did a great job at the American Hernia Society meeting this year. Yeah, she applied for an ACS grant and she got it. And she's going to come visit our research shop. The ACS grant was to like come visit different like research places oh, and come cool. look because cool. I love I love her vibe and I love her jam. Yeah. She's, she's really into like female and LGBTQ and like patient experience and Maine. kind of all like- right? What? Is she Maine? No, she's at Ohio State. Ohio State, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. it may as well be Maine. There's, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I know. Well, I was you're waiting right. for that. Yeah, I'm like, that so... it doesn't really matter. It could be yeah, anywhere. It's it's, it's not really Michigan. It's, it's not. It's, it's south. not here. It's south. It may be of two here. hours south from here. Yeah. <laughs> there may be no love lost between the two, but yeah, there's know. probably no love lost, but. Well, Lisa, we can't thank you enough for sharing this time with us. We know that your time is precious and it's, oh, it's really, are you kidding? I was so the, looking forward to this. this oh, is it's, so this great. is one of the true blessings we've, we've gotten out of this podcast is just getting to sit down. Yeah. albeit virtually, uh, and hear from such a diverse group of sages leaders with passions that 
they really are truly changing the landscape of surgical yeah. culture and improving patient outcomes, like you said. And I know we'll listen back on this in a few years and reflect on the great lessons that you shared with us today. So thanks so much, Dana. Thanks guys. It was so great seeing you. I was like super great being here. And I like, this was just great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great night. Have a great night guys. Take care. And that wraps up today's episode of Sage's Stories. You can view the show notes for any links to sites we referenced today. Visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. See you again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.